forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Doc. Yeah, it's good to be back with you. We kind of finished up with, well, what do we do next? And that's kind of where we are today, right? Yeah. Now, to lead off, you often quote you know, professional athletes and whatnot, but I'm going to throw a quote at you from somebody who was very definitely not a professional athlete, and that was uh, the filmmaker Woody Allen. And okay. <laughs> Woody Allen once very famously said that 90% of success is just showing up. Oh, and man, is he that was, true? He was making the point that in a lot of times in life, a lot of points in our career, we just don't show up. And that if you just keep showing up, <laughs> right, and being, being there, right, that a lot of times that's, that's what success over the long haul is. But this whole idea of showing up at, or not showing up really is central to a lot of the work that you do with the professional athletes and the ordinary people and all the things you've done in your career. So talk about showing up. Yeah, and I think I'll, I'll kind of start with this is um, let's have you know our listeners think about the people in their lives. Think of that person or a few people that have had the most impact on you. The ones that really kind of know you the best, the one you go to in times of need. If I said, you got to make a, you got to phone a friend right now, right? Who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? And I will almost guarantee you that that person is somebody who you would consider as always being present with you. That they're, they're there with you in that moment, right? And you, you can trust that person that they're not going to be scrolling through their Facebook, right? They're not going to be you know um, pacing back and forth. They're going to sit down and they're going to lean in and they're going to listen. And they're going to be present. And relationships that really make us healthy are ones where the people are present. And when we're present, I'd also challenge the listeners right now as myself, you know, who's the last person you interacted with today? And how much of you was in that moment? Was it 100%? Was it 60%? Was it 30%? And in whatever field it's in, it's all about being present. Uh, you know, I want my accountant to be present when they're working on the books, right? Um, I want my wife to be present when I'm talking to her, right? We have that expectation from other people, but how good are we at being present? And that's the real challenge as we go through today's podcast. I remember joking with friends years ago because someone was saying, man, I don't, I don't like these kind of obsessive compulsive alpha personality people that are, you know, totally in. I go, unless you're having brain surgery, yeah. and then you want your brain. So I want the most uptight, <laughs> overwired yeah. right, alpha personality guy cutting on my head, right? Because I want him to be a hundred percent there. Yep. But you're, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's been there. But now I've heard you talk before about there's sort of an inverse relationship. I mean, a little bit of maybe an irony about the frontal lobe, right? So certain people have 
a capacity, God-given capacity, whatever, to conceptualize. Right? Yeah. And I mean, that's a gift, the ability to conceptualize, to visualize, to imagine, to think, to plan, right? To, to see scenarios in the future and sort of gain them out. That's what makes some people capable of doing, you know, amazing things. But the dark side of that or downside of that is the more you live in that space about what might happen or that conceptual space, in some sense, you're not living uh, in the here and now. You're not living right here in the moment, you know, and, you know, what makes us different from animals is this cerebral cortex with all these folds in it that the further you go down in animal sophistication, you'll find that there's less of these folds to the point that the cerebral cortex is almost flat. But in humans, we have tons of these folds in the cerebral cortex that come forward and create this frontal lobe. And so from a neuroanatomy standpoint, we are much more complex uh, than animals. The downside to that is an animal is pretty much always present, right? Like when my Vishla, you know, climbs up on the couch and he curls up with me, he's there, right? Like he is, I can't even get him off of me. They call him Velcro dogs, right? But he's not thinking about, oh, what time is, you know, my favorite TV show on? Or, you know, how are the Jets doing this year compared to the uh, Dolphins, right? He's right there with me because he isn't able to go into these different places. Now I can. And so I have the ability to go If you ask me about my second grade teacher, if I ask all of our listeners out there, imagine for a second your second grade teacher, a lot of you can see that person in your mind. Uh, Imagine yourself five years from now, you can actually create that scenario in your mind. That's what makes us so sophisticated as humans. And it's what really gives us kind of our power to kind of change the world around us, to create the iPhones, right? To create the Teslas, to to fly aircraft in, you know, in the sky across the world, right? Is this ability to plan and reason and engage in executive functioning. But it is a blessing and a curse is that we have to be able to balance that and not let it just take us into places that rob us from being in the moment, whatever that moment is for you. You have a phrase about this, the, the what ifs. The what, what ifs and the what abouts. You know, I say, you know, what if this happens? And I can ask you, you know, what if? And all of a sudden your your stress is anticipatory stress. And we're going to talk about this in later podcasts, but it's not really stress that kills you. It's It's worrying about stress. It's the anticipatory stress. It's engaging that frontal lobe, doing the what ifs to the point that you're now in sympathetic and you can't sleep at night. You're so far removed from presence that you can't engage in a conversation with somebody for more than 30 seconds without your mind bouncing from here to here. And then you want to say, well, I have ADHD. I would say you probably don't have ADHD. You probably have something going on in your autonomic nervous system that's upstream. But the whatabouts are those things that are unresolved. Uh, The unresolved past is our present. And I would like to talk about that a little bit more because I know all of us have something back there that's undone, that's unfinished, 
that sometimes can get to the point that it actually dictates our presence. It, it becomes the thing that guides us because of these unresolved things. And I um, want to briefly discuss why is that going on in our brain? Because that doesn't happen to the to the animal. It doesn't happen to my Vishla if he misses a catch that I want to throw a ball to him, right? You know, he's just on to the next toss, right? But the athlete maybe misses the next three catches because he's thinking about the easy one that he dropped, right? Or he's at the free throw line and can't make that free throw. Or at work, we make a decision because we're thinking about the what about. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how this happens, okay? So let's start with this. Is the greatest thing that the brain can do is it can learn. It's always learning. And this is probably the thing, if, if medicine has robbed something from us, it's our ability to be thinking about how do I leverage my ability to learn to take care of myself. Many of us, the only thing that we learn is how do I take the top off the pill bottle and take the pill. But we don't leverage what the brain is doing constantly, which is learning. Your brain is always trying to solve problems. Most of those are unconscious, but it's also doing that consciously. Okay, You're solving problems. Temperature right now, keeping your body at 98.6, your body is solving that problem. The food you ate one hour ago, your body is solving that problem. That infection, that uh, bacteria that you were exposed to, your body's solving that. It's figuring it all out, right? Constantly. And so it's always wanting to solve things, but that can be problematic. So let's use this as an example. If I say to you, the sky is blue, you'll probably just move right on. But if I say to you, why is the sky blue? Okay, what makes the sky blue? We might let that question just go. But I've now triggered something in your brain that sometime along the way, it might be tomorrow when you're standing in the shower. Okay, it might be when you're driving down the road to work two days from now. Something's going to pop into your mind. You're going to say, oh, the sky's blue because of this, right? Because your brain needs to solve that problem. It, the statement, the sky is blue, doesn't do as much for you as, well, why is it blue, right? So that's that brain's, even at an unconscious level, it has to learn. It has to figure that out, right? So the whatabouts really come from these unresolved problems that my brain hasn't come up with a good enough solution for. It can't pack it up. It can't be, this is why the sky's blue. Why did that person abuse me, right? Why did that happen? And it's still unresolved, you know? Why did I have such a hard time in school? Why did I lose that job? Why didn't I make that team, right? We ask those whys, we think they're kind of done, but your brain is still working on solving that problem. And that unresolved past, because of your brain's natural ability to want to learn and figure things out, is actually still open. And it's your present. It becomes your present 
because you can't close the loop on this question. You can't close that the makes f- sense? Yeah, you can't close the file. It's like uh, you know, in some detective show where they've got the, you know, the uh the unresolved case files, right? You know, from some murder 20 years ago that detective so and so is still working through. It, they've never solved the case and it just sits there on his desk forever thinking about it, right? It's the John Bonet Ramsey situation like we're yeah. still talking about it. We can't figure out who, you know, who did it. But now I want to kind of ask you this because, you know, your career, um, neuropsych and all the things that you've done, the average person struggling with that, maybe they reach out through their insurance or their employer or whatever. And what they're offered is talking therapy. So go yep. into a counselor, spend 40 minutes talking about this. You're going to spend three or four sessions or five sessions talking about it. Talk about talking therapy in terms of addressing some of this and how it plays out in our ability to do all the things that you're talking about, which is close those loops, close those cases, be present. Start off by defining from, for the listener, for you, from you as a doctor of neuropsychology, define talking therapy. What do we mean by that? Yeah. So uh, we're talking about uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or psychoanalytic therapy or different forms of therapy where um, what you're going to do, if you go way back to like Sigmund Freud, okay, he felt that if I give you the blank space, like create a, a blank screen and I get out of the way and let you just kind of project these things out here, that in a sense, the brain will start doing some of this problem solving by projecting it out. And that's why you see the picture of the therapist uh, kind of sitting behind the person laying on the couch, you know, and the person is supposed to, in a sense, start this loop, this undone loop, right? And some of the theories there is that we will play these undone loops out in scenarios that look like the original undone loop. So I have a problem like with my father, let's say, then all of a sudden I have a male school teacher and I might act out that same problem with what is called a cyclical maladaptive pattern. Until I get a corrective emotional experience, I'll keep engaging in this unresolved pattern, maybe through 10 relationships that uh, need to get unpacked. And so in therapy, uh, in traditional psychoanalytic or interpersonal therapy, you would go back and, and try to unpack some of those and maybe cognitively try to resolve that problem. The therapist should become corrective in that and not get in the loop as well. That's what they call transference, counter-transference is when all of a sudden the therapists get stuck in the loop, and that's always a problem. Um, but they're in that setting, which is helpful, you're really working outside with more the conscious. And we've talked about this difference between the conscious and the unconscious. But we cannot remove ourselves from the fact that my unconscious body, uh, 90 to 95% of what's going on that I'm not even aware of, was present in these situations as well. So I developed triggers in my adrenal system where a certain thing happens, it makes my uh, activates my memory center, centers in my hippocampus because something emotional happens, it triggers my amygdala, and now my hypothalamus is activated and asking for my adrenal glands to release adrenaline. 
all these are very physiological things that are learned patterns that are the triggers can set those off. And I find that if you're not unpacking that and retraining some of that, that you can really be spinning in circles in the talk therapy. And a great example of this is we work at a a major division one university where we provide treatment for all their division one athletes, 600 uh, of their athletes. And we started to uh, do some work for their counseling center because what their, their main person there identified, uh, you know, unbeknownst to us was these athletes that we had been training on how to breathe well, how to control their heart rate variability, how to control their, uh, skin response, which is a real uh, factor in stress, change their body temperature, which we were doing for sports, he was astutely noticing if he was seeing some of these people in counseling that they were advancing much faster than the average person coming to the counseling center. So he's asked us at the counseling center where he's at, or the part that he does the counseling, is he wants everybody doing 10 to 15 minutes of this body work, this working with the autonomic nervous system to calm it down before it ever even comes into therapy. And he's reporting that it's taking half the number of sessions to get these students through issues that in the past would have taken twice as long because their bodies are getting reprogrammed. So now they're more receptive and they're not getting stuck in these loops automatically, which become counterproductive to treatment. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. This is this actually, this is central to your whole career and methodology, whether that's in inner armor or royal neuroscience, everything that you do, which is in a sense, this transition that took place from the talking therapy, the sort of classical Sigmund Freud, have the guy lie on a couch and talk about his mother, right? To understanding there's physiological, neurological, physiological components to a lot of this, not just the conscious stuff. And so you start looking at neural pathways that have been grooved. You start looking, as you're saying, at, at pre-programmed protocols and triggers that take place in our, you know, in our, in our hippocampus and pituitary and adrenal axes and all of these kinds of autonomic nervous system things. It's not always just up there, sometimes there's that physiological component. And what you've really been doing in your career is finding ways to integrate those things and understand well, how much of what we do is driven by those neurological, physiological components, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a great example is uh, in the early 2000s when uh, I kind of I got my first biofeedback device to work with. Uh, which was a, a skin temperature. And I was going to use it for kids with anxiety. And uh, while I was at this conference, I learned about EEG feedback and some other things. And I started to do some of this work. And in my practice, I had, oh, about 100 plus kids and adults that we were doing behavioral, traditional talk therapy with, you know, my you know, 50-minute sessions, you know, on the hour kind of thing. And I decided to take about six months and take my caseload and said, for the next six months, we're going to retrain their autonomic nervous system, okay, before we do the talk therapy. Because I'd seen a little inclination that when I could help people control their body temperature, they seemed more receptive and they seemed, it wasn't like I was banging my head up against the wall when we were doing therapy. And so I said, let's take six months and let's 
get everybody really established in their autonomic nervous system. So we got good measures of all different, the heart, the breathing, the brain, the hormones, all kinds of things. And we trained it for six months. So then I started to call back. A lot of them were kids, adolescents, the parents. And I said, okay, we're ready to start talk therapy. Well, guess what these th parents were saying back? You know what? Um, Johnny's making some pretty good decisions. And uh, I don't know why, but but he's less anxious. And, you know, uh, he's sleeping better and doing a little bit better at school. And I started to track this down. And my, I basically killed my practice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my therapy practice went down to zero because we started focusing on the autonomic nervous system. Not to say that, I mean, therapy is great, you know, and I'm, I'm not opposed to that. I'm just saying it, it's a complex thing. We're, we're not reduced to just one thing, but our body is involved in all of this. There's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score, okay? And if we're not fixing that first, as a therapist, you're working against a very powerful system, which is this protective autonomic nervous system. And a lot of people who are normal to average intellectual functioning, if their autonomic nervous system is calmed down, they actually do make good decisions. They're not like trying to be irritable and purposely ruin relationships. It's more of a protect, protective me mechanism of their autonomic nervous system being in a fight-flight state all the time. We've been talking on about the what ifs and what abouts, and we've been doing a little bit about the what abouts, that stuff in the past that you is unresolved. But let's go back to the what ifs, those future scenario situations. And so we can certainly imagine the your high performance NFL quarterback, or maybe even your uh, high performance NFL coach, who's imagining all the different scenarios for next week's game, all the things that might happen, and all the things that might happen all in the playoff picture, and that's causing them to not be able to be present because they're futurizing. But I'm also just thinking about the ordinary person who's thinking about their 401k or they're worried about their kids getting into a college or they're worried about uh, the layoffs that are going to come to the company and whether they're going to get the ax, right? I mean, there's so many things that, and then they're not present for their family. They're even sitting at work worrying about what might happen at work and they're not doing their current job well, right? So. Talk about how those what-ifs play out in ordinary life where people aren't present. Yeah, I would like to kind of start that with thinking or have you think about the difference between possibility and probability, okay? So what trips us up so often is we make this shift into possibilities, okay? Is it possible that the ceiling of this house could fall in on me right now? It's, you know what? It is possible. It could happen, right? Is it probable? No, it's not, right? It's not probable, but I have a choice because of my frontal lobe to create as many possible scenarios as I want to in my mind or pack that up with some probability and move on. You know, if, if I'm a fairly decent, hardworking person, okay, who does pretty good in relationships, the likelihood is that the probability is that I'm going to keep my job, okay, and that I, you know, I do live in a 
you know, the United States, which is all kinds of, you know, possibilities to do things out there, right? So I'm going to be able to find a job and, and keep these things going. Are there possible scenarios that could happen? Sure, there are. But when you live in possibility, you rob yourself of being present. Is Your world becomes dominated by possibilities. And we have to live in, in more of a space of probability. You know, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, is looking at, you know, what got me to this point? You know, I got through high school, I got through college, I got the job. You're probably going to keep moving on, but you're, you're stuck on those possibilities. And you're, you're robbing yourself of being successful if you don't stay in the moment. And that's a really tricky thing, right? Is we want to think about the future, but in doing so, if I do too much of that, I can't be available at the moment. You know, the guy at the free throw line with two seconds left in the game and he tanks both free throws is not because he can't make free throws. It's because he lost his ability to be present in that moment at that time. He went someplace else. He was not on the free throw line. He was in some other scenario in his mind that took away from his percentage of presence. And that's well, what we have to ask ourselves. And that's why, that's why you call a, a timeout before the other guy kicks a field goal, right? To ice the kicker. Yeah, you're trying to send him into what ifs. That's what the coach is trying to do. He, he doesn't want that kicker to be present. He wants that kicker to be in what ifs, or maybe there's a what about, you know, the unresolved conflict of missing the field goal in college, right? That is going to come out. He wants him to get into some other space, not into presence. And the, the way to get into presence starts with your senses, is stopping and going through all five senses and saying, what am I seeing? What am I smelling? What is my, what am I feeling on my skin? You know, uh, going, what am I hearing, right? Taking these things in and sometimes saying, wait a minute, that's too much. Maybe I need to settle some of those senses down, right? Turn the volume down, maybe shut the lights down a little bit more so that I can be present. But that's a lost art. That is a real lost art. And like we opened the, the podcast with, the people that are the movers and the shakers in our world that have transformed our lives relationally, the one-on-ones, you know, not somebody we watch on TV, but that grandparent or that uncle or that brother or sister, those people are present and they're changing lives way more than any entertainer or CEO. They're changing your life, right? And that's about being present and asking ourselves, how present am I at this current moment? Doc, are there certain types of people, I don't want to say personality types, but certain types of people that are more prone to live in that what-if space? You know, in my life, I know a lot of people who are engineers and scientists, and it seems like a lot of them get caught in those loops because they're, in a sense, by, you know, by inclination and training and experience, they're constantly computing they're constantly thinking they're constantly conceptualizing and it seems like you know from my observation they're they're sort of more prone to uh, get out of presence 
how do you work with people who have this amazing gift to be able to do certain things with their mind, but then how do you coach them or train them or work with them to moderate that without giving up what, what makes them good at what they do? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. And that really goes to kind of the, the physiology or the neurology of kind of how our brain works. And when you talked to this earlier episodes of how it works off of electrical current, okay? And so this electrical device, this brain, you can read the speed at which this brain is going, okay? And uh, we'll get into this in later podcasts, but I want to I explain this one variable in the brain, which I think robs us of presence. And that is something called high beta. High beta is the brain's ability to go really, really fast and if necessary, obsess and become very tunnel vision. And so this requires very high speeds, frequencies up above 24 hertz, 27 hertz. The perfect speed in that ideal spot in the brain is about 12 to 15 hertz. But when you get up in these fast frequencies, it robs you of presence. So just not to get too deep here, but you want the ratio of your high betas to your really good brain waves uh, to be less than about 1.4. You don't want more of that because then you're dominated by these fast brain waves. The average person walking the street is about a 1.6. Uh, I see uh, if I took 100 school teachers, they're about a 1.8, 1.9. And the average physician uh, is about a 2.2. Average attorney is about a 2.4. Okay. That doesn't mean they're all that way, but there is, like you said, there's a tendency that sometimes the things that make us successful, that we've, uh, that perfectionism, that obsessiveness, that drive can get out of balance and get us stuck up into that state, which robs us from presence. So when I'm in high beta, too much of this stress brainwave, I can't be present. But I want to give you an example. So these are the average numbers, one four, one six, up above two. Now you're getting really kind of non-present. You're in the what ifs or the what abouts. So when I typically will look at like an NBA draft or an NFL draft, uh, we'll see people that average around one six-ish, one five-ish. Uh, average uh, tennis player, is about a one five one six, right? Well, I had an opportunity a number of years ago to work with somebody who has been number one in the world in tennis multiple times, multiple times. When I went to go look at this individual's brain, now you remember we, you know, one four and higher, too much high beta. Very rare to see somebody below one. This person was a point six nine. Wow. There's, there was basically no high beta in there. Was, if it was, it was much lower than the, 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 dom, the good brain waves, right? And that ratio, it's very rare to see it below one. This person's a you know, 0.69-ish. An opportunity to actually then a year or two later hook up somebody who'd been number one in the world in golf multiple times. 0.71. Wow. It's just rare enough to see one person below one, but then to see two. And then I got to hook up somebody who was MVP of the NBA. 0.7. Hmm. These, are, these are oddities. They don't do, those don't just come, come from being a great athlete. They are combined with athletic ability to allow these people in very, very stressful situations 
to not let the what ifs and the what abouts come in electrically, but to be very present. When they're at Wimbledon, it's like they're on their practice court, right? When I'm at Wimbledon, I'd be like, I couldn't even step on the court. I'd be so nervous, right? Because I don't have that underlying high beta. And we train that in individuals. I have some CEOs right now who are 0.65, 0.7. And they're like, Doc, in board meetings, I am so far ahead of everybody else because I can see the seams on the ball. There's no high beta in there. There's no what ifs, what abouts. And so it really goes back to a a measurable thing. And that's the physiology of the autonomic nervous system and what it's doing. That is what truly defines presence, is being able to keep the autonomic nervous system under control. Okay. So two things, Doc. One is for somebody that says, I really want to begin that kind of assessment and training. They can go to forgeinnerarmor.com and find links there, links off the podcast. They can work with you, your team, uh, Royer Neuroscience, different capacities and ways to do that. But informally, the person who's listening to this, who's got to go out tomorrow and do whatever it is that they have to do in their arena of life, what are some tips for them to be present tomorrow in wherever they are doing whatever they're doing? Well, the, the place I would start would be breathing. Is um, I would start every day, I would tell this person, the person out there, I need to make a change. Something's got to change. I got to stop living in the what ifs and the what abouts, okay? Is I want you to take three minutes in the morning. Three minutes, that's all I'm saying, okay? Get, a, get an app on a phone that teaches you to breathe at six breaths a minute okay, from your diaphragm and just do three minutes of breathing and be thinking about your five senses, being present. Then halfway through the day, after lunch, whatever, one o'clock, sit down and do three more minutes. And then later, before you go to bed, do three more minutes. So nine minutes. If you can't come up with nine minutes, then you have a different issue (laughs) that we need to talk about. Okay, but just do that. Set the alarm on your phone to go off and just do three minutes of breathing. Uh, We're going to hear this story later, but there was an athlete that came to me and said, Doc, I got to get fixed in under two weeks because we play Ohio State. Uh, And what can you do? And I said, well, I can't do a lot on your brain, but I can teach you to breathe. Mm. And that guy went out and had fantastic game two weeks later and was a different person. but. It's all about the breathing first, okay? And that breathing is what connects us, connects our body internally and thinking about that breath and really accentuate that that exhale, nice and long and kind of drawn out, nice exhale and just try to relax. Uh, Do that three times a day. That's where I would start. And you've also talked in the past, you just mentioned it too, the sensory connection. So one of the things that grounds you is to physically touch things, right? To physically pay attention to things. I hear the bird chirping or I hear the traffic on the street or I'm touching the desk or I'm touching the wall. I'm, 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 I'm connecting myself to, the, to where I actually am, right? Yep. Bring in those five senses. You know, uh, go outside and go through all five senses and yeah. say, where, what am I experiencing? And then kind of create a gauge for yourself, like a dial. 100% is presence. Where am I right now? 
right? Can I get 10% more? I'm at 40%. Can I be 10% better? Okay. Um, you start doing this with significant others in your life. They're going to wonder what in the world happened to you because you're going to be a different person. They're going to be like, you're actually listening to me. Yes, I'm being present. And you'll actually learn a lot from the people around you when you are present. That's great stuff, Doc. Well, we'll come back and talk more about that in future episodes, I'm sure. But thanks for joining us today and look forward to our next conversation. Can't wait for it. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.